there are some standards out there to fix this problem, but right now a token is very similar to a car key, right? Like anyone who finds your car key, if they're next, if the key is next to the car, they can turn it on. And so you want to make, make sure that you're storing that car key in a, in a pocket that's buttoned up as opposed to a pocket that anybody can kind of get into. I'm Jason Harmon, and this is API Intersection, where you'll get insights from experienced API practitioners to learn best practices on things like API design, governance, identity auth, versioning, and more. Welcome back to API Intersection. As always, I'm your host, Jason Harmon, CTO at Stoplight. Today, we're gonna get, uh, we're gonna go down the rabbit hole. We're gonna go a little deeper, perhaps. You know, sometimes we stay a little like API program centric and look at the high level. Uh, but I think with today's guest, we have the opportunity to, to really go deep on something. And when it comes to APIs, I don't think there's a much more important topic than kind of, you know, auth mechanisms and how you build those things, how you think about them. Uh, so I'm super stoked to have Dan Moore from uh, Fusion Auth today. Dan, thanks for joining. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Jason. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm Dan Moore. I'm head of developer relations at Fusion Auth. And I... I've been, before I joined FusionAuth, I'd been um, startup CTO, engineering manager, developer, and I have to confess, someone who was afraid of auth and someone who understood the importance of it, had implemented it a couple of times, had used some libraries, but uh, was not really digging into the particulars. I find a lot of devs are like me. They know what's important. They kind of find the quickest solution that they're comfortable with and they move on. But in my role in DevRel with FusionAuth, I've had the ability to really dig in and both do implementation and education around OAuth and authentication in general. So looking forward to talking to you. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's sorely needed. Uh, we've been meeting up with quite a few sort of security experts between the podcast and some of the Stoplight webcasts and stuff lately. And I think if there's one sentiment that's true, it's that... Like the attacks are on the rise and broadly speaking, there's still a lot of folks that just don't know what to do. Um, and yet some of it seems so simple when you boil it down as to what's important. And I like that you mentioned OAuth, which um, I feel like is one of, you know, it's been 10 plus years that this is like, this is the, this is the way guys, this is the way we should do it. But that when I engage with different teams, it's like, the recognition that this is going to be the hard part of building your platform and you should start soon isn't often recognized. Uh, and then when you get into it, the question of like, people try to learn and they're like, there's 50 different ways to do this. Like, how do I, what am I building? Do I have to build all this stuff? Right. So um, I, I saw y'all had some interesting content on kind of how to break this down and describe it. I'd love to dig into yeah, so we actually have an article out there called What is OAuth? The Modern Guide. And definitely can get that to you all so you can toss it in the show notes if you want. But basically the idea is that OAuth is this, it, like you said, it, it's sprawling. It's been around for 10 or 12 years. Well, I think since 2012 was when it was officially stamped. But over the years, there have been additional RFCs, additional standards. OIDC is an authentication layer, layer on top of it. I have a slide deck that I've 
shown before where you basically talk about the 15 different things that you need to do to determine, um, or sorry, to really understand OAuth, the 15 different RFCs and whatnot. So there's that piece. And then there's the fact that it's really a framework. And so the way I would think about OAuth is, you know, what problem are you trying to solve? Are you worried about letting someone log into your application because you have an interactive application? Are you more worried about letting someone um, log into a, th a third party or a first party uh, where you're the actual platform, right? Like a Facebook or a Google, and you want to extend the ability for people to authenticate against your system. Um, another, op another thing is really probably more germane to your listeners is authorization, which is where you're basically getting back a token from an OAuth flow. But even in that case, are you the person that is requesting the token and going to make requests against a protected resource? Like, or are you the person that is owning that uh, resource and you are building authentication for your customers, users, other third-party providers to get access to your resources? And so because OAuth is sprawling, you can make it work for any of these use cases. And I haven't, I haven't even talked about machine-to-machine -machine authentication, right? All those first use cases I talked about really involved a user, right? In some way where a user is authenticating, a user is logging in um, and granting access. There's also the entire case of users uh, not being involved at all. And it's just two programs talking to each other, but we still want to uh, authenticate them and make sure they get proper authorization. Yeah, the, the question of authorization, I feel like that's where things unravel a lot of times. Um, and it's notable that on the OWASP API top 10, which listeners, if you haven't checked it out, it was just refreshed a couple of months ago. Um, you know, definitely educate yourself with uh, OWASP top 10 in general, but there's an API version of it. But it's notable that the number one thing, and I think it's always been the number one on, or at least top three on the general top 10. And I think now second edition of the API when it's it's still the top is BOLA, broken object level authorization, right? The idea that I want this resource and it doesn't stop me from getting things that I'm not allowed to do. So in terms of like, what problem are you solving when that question comes up? You just point to that. Like, that's the problem that we're solving with this. <laughs> and totally. like attacks are up, you know, 10,000% in the last six months too. So highly relevant. Yep. Yep. And yeah, I mean, I think it is important to say like, you know, OAuth is not this magic fairy dust, right? Like it is a tool and it in some respects is a sharp tool, but it doesn't know about your object level, your correct object level authorization. Like you as a developer still need to like build that out, make sure it's consistent, make sure it's enforced. Um, OAuth can help provide you tools to do so. But at the end of the day, it's, it's business logic, right? Like authorization fundamentally all the times I've ever been involved with it, it gets strung throughout the application because it's business logic. Um, there are ways to abstract it with like, um, oh, what was that called? I don't know. I, I know there, there are services out there it, when it comes to me, but there are services out there that you can like build the yeah, authorization. Like, like RBAC systems, role-based author, uh, authorization control, stuff or access yep. control, stuff like yep. that. Yeah. RBAC is one. Um, ABAC is another. So there's ABAC, yeah. frameworks out there for that. But um you still have to like do the hard work of determining what the right rules are and then making sure it's enforced. Yep. So yeah, let's, let's work our way down the stack. Like I said, I want to, 
want to kind of go deep on the subject today. So, uh, you know, let's say that, you know, I've looked at a list and I go like, okay, this is the use cases that I want to support with OAuth. I, I feel like the next thing that uh, kind of comes up is like, okay, well, how do I do scopes? I see these scope things and I don't know what it means. Is this how I do access control now? Should I define everything in scopes? You know, do some restriction at the edge and the application doesn't know about it? Or, you know, like, uh, how do you see those things working well? So this is where OAuth shines is where you have kind of three parties, right? You have the party that has access to the resource um, let's just use Zendesk example, right? Zendesk has access to tickets and all kinds of things. It has organizations and whatnot. And then you have a party that um, wants access to those tickets, right? So maybe it's an analytics platform that's going to like analyze your Zendesk tickets. And then you have the user, right? And the user is granting access to the analytics application to Zendesk on the user's behalf. And so that's where scopes come in, right? And so scopes are a way for the user for Zendesk to define, hey, I have read ticket, write ticket, create ticket, um, close ticket scopes. Right? These are permissions that make sense in the context of Zendesk. Uh, they wouldn't make um, any sense in the context of WordPress or some other you know, provider. So they're super business logic specific. And then the user, they have to be understandable to the user, right? So the user, when they are saying, hey, analytics at platform, what the analytics platform gets to say, I want access to these scopes. And then the user is the one who actually determines whether or not they want to grant that. And I don't know about you all, but like when I'm prevent presented with this like screen and all I want to do is do my job, it's really hard for me to avoid just clicking yes and getting through because I don't know what the alternative is, right? Like if I don't grant the analytics platform the ability to, to read tickets, what happens? Is there an alternative? Right? I can't go back to analytics platform. So there's that complexity around scopes. And so you want to keep them small and constrained. And you as the, the analytics platform or the client want to ask for just what you need, right? So we're talking about more from the API provider side, from the Zendesk side. And so you want to think about like what scopes do make sense, what like business operations can be clustered together. And there's this fine balancing act between you know, making them granular enough that it makes sense for people to, that people, that users will understand what they're granting and then making it coarse enough that someone doesn't have to check 25 boxes and the client's just going to ask for the admin level that gives them everything. So um, that's kind of how I think about scopes from a, a high level perspective. Yeah, so it's it's worth calling out here as you describe scopes that, you know, it's business logic oriented. There's uh, clearly some naming convention implied in what you're talking about. Um, the, the question of, you know, the Goldilocks zone of scope definition, you know, is it too coarse? Is it too fine? That I think this is fundamentally, it's, it's a design thing that's right alongside how you design your APIs, your platform as a whole, right? Yes. Yeah. And I think sometimes people think there's like some magic formula or like, how do I follow the directions to get these? And it's like, no, you have to like really think hard about it. Um, I mean, under, understand your business problem and how people want to use your API, right? Like that, that's, it's as simple as that, Jason, come on. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty <laughs> straightforward, right? <laughs> um, I guess to the question though of, all right, we've gone through this design exercise We've got, you know, consistent naming conventions to our scopes. We've defined 
uh, access sort of patterns for each resource. Um, and it all makes sense. If I'm the application developer and these things are sort of uh, foisted on me, right? Like, okay, I have all this stuff that I need to, to comply with. Am I writing my application in a way that just respects those scopes and that does the whole job? Uh, and if I have any further access control, do I just make more scopes? Uh, in other words, is the goal at that point that the application developer just eliminate access control from uh, their API? Uh, or do you see sort of there's a more hybrid approach of some of it has to be in the application, some of it is is handled at the scope level? So you, it seems to me like you're talking about... Uh, are you are you talking about the third party application, like the analytics application? That mm, no, I or are you talking I about think, the first party application where you're kind of like owning both sides yeah, of the. I, okay. I guess I'm thinking like, uh, and you're right. Like the the third party like consent flow is like the thing that most people are reaching for OAuth for, but we know there are a number of other ways, and and we'll link to the content you guys have on kind of this modes of a way to think about breaking it down. But I guess I'm thinking now the request is coming in and it has a scope on it. As the, the uh, application developer building that API, you know, how do I think about using these scopes and restricting access to my API so that I'm not uh, feeding the Bolo problem? Sure. I mean, obviously, one of the things. So, so when you get this token, like it's not. Uh, so, sorry, I want to probably take a step back. Like, you know, when you get a token, you need to do certain things to it. It's not like an API key where it's kind of a thumbs up, thumbs down in terms of validation, you need to do, so you need to validate this token. And there's a number of different ways to validate it. If you have a self-signed or if you have a signed token, you need to validate the signature. You could also use what's called introspection where you basically call back to the thing that issued the token and say, hey, is this token you know valid or not? And then after that, you still need to like look at the values that are inside the token, either that are given to you, I should be careful here, if it's, a, if it's a signed token, you need to look at the values that are inside the token. If it's a response from the authorization server, you need to look at that and validate the other claims. One of those claims is going to be a scope. There are other claims like who issued the token, who um, the token is for. That's a really important one that I think people often forget because an authorization server uh, can, you know, some, which is something that issues OAuth tokens, can issue tokens for all different kinds of services. And you can definitely have an attacker who gets, I always use the example of they get the token for the to-do API and then they present it to the accounting API. And obviously an admin in the to-do API has different roles and it's probably different people than the admin in the accounting API. So you as an API consumer, as that app dev, you need to look at all those pieces. So to return to your original question about scopes, um, I think that really depends on the, I mean, obviously I think you can look at other things like other claims, like custom claims that probably can limit authorization, right? Is it a premium user or not a premium user? Um, oh, so you also need to look at the expiration claim because tokens can expire. And that's one of the great things about them is that they do expire because it's this little portable credential that's running around the internet. Um, so you want to make sure that it's not expired, but uh, you also can filter by the subject, right? Which is who this token is about. And so that's another place that I think you need to check. So scopes, custom claims, tokens, um, those to me get you a big chunk of the way. 
when you say hybrid, Jason, I'm curious, like, what are you, what are you thinking? Yeah, I, I guess it's like a, a debate that's come up for me many times in my career when folks are, are trying to kind of go tackle the auth problem and, and, you know, perhaps they've come at it from the OAuth side, but uh, regardless, you know, of whether it's a jot or something else, there's some kind of uh, claims defined in the form of scopes. And let's say it says, you know, uh, read tickets. Cool, you can read tickets. But then there might be some, you know, particular case, actually the one you gave of like, is this a, is this a paid user or free user? Is it a user on the right tier level? That check has to get done somewhere. And um, it's like a square peg in a round hole to put that stuff in scopes. It doesn't really make sense. And then sometimes there's a version to putting that, uh, that information in some kind of custom claim because now you're putting temporal information that could change into a long-lived token. And so then, you know, the app developers kind of get this itchiness of like, well, I don't want to put access control stuff in the API uh, implementation code because these things are supposed to be centrally defined. So like, how do you resolve those kinds of things? Yeah. So, you know, I think that the, this gets back to what we were talking about earlier about authorization being business logic, right? So where would you put business logic? Is it something that in that, that obviously depends on the, the size maturity of your company um, or your, your project, you know, you could move it out to a library, you could put it into an API call. Um, you could use one of those centralized authorization servers. I know there's open source ones like permit or Serbos, which will basically take it whole token and you give and you give it the action that they're trying to do the user trying to do and then it gives you back a thumbs up thumbs down and it has more insight into into things um including kind of what resources trying to be accessed and things like that so absolutely 100 percent agree that scopes is not the right place to to jam in that kind of information you know what we've seen is it varies between like you know you you do those additional checks audience and custom claims um, in some kind of abstracted piece of uh, business logic, but where it actually lives probably matters less than kind of agreeing. If I was to start a Greenfield project, I'd probably start with it in a library first, right? Because that's just the simplest mm -hmm. thing. Um, and then as things get you know more complicated, maybe move it to an API and then maybe move that API to something backed by more of a, an authorization server, like I mentioned. Yeah. I mean, I guess the other piece of it is like... Um, you can do, well, into your points, like as things get more complicated is quite often like as the scale grows. And uh, one thing I see people get kind of hung up about is like, uh, should we be doing these scope checks at the edge or in the application? And uh, it's like my takes usually like on a long enough timeline, you're going to want it at the edge and preferably in a way that never touches any user data store you don't want to touch user information on every request and then like the fine-grained stuff should uh, kind of continue life in the application level because you can't do all that stuff at the edge um so that's my like general approach to these things but i'm curious if you have anything more nuanced or uh, smarter i don't I don't do this for a living. <laughs> um, I do lots of things for a living, yeah. Jason. <laughs> yeah, um, no, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, part of it is, and I'm sure that you get this with every guest, right? Like part of it is my lived history. And my lived history is much more kind of the startup 
world and the smaller company world. So I'm a big fan of the simplest thing that possibly work. I know that you can't push all those claims checks and all that intelligence into Amazon API Gateway, for example, but I would sure push as much as I could because that's the nice thing about using token-based authentication is that you do get these like multiple layers, you get a little bit of defense in depth. Um, but I would start with the simplest thing that would possibly work and I would absolutely not worry about over-engineering it. But that's my, my background, right? Like if you're starting and you're like from government or from a bigger organization, um, hopefully, first of all, you have like uh, kind of a best practices that's internal that you can kind of reach for. Um, but you might be much more predisposed to um, a more heavyweight kind of future-proofed approach. So, Yeah, it makes sense. I think it's kind of like the old like monolith microservice thing is like, you know, everyone starts in a monolith. It's fine. And I think in the same way with auth stuff we're talking about, like everyone starts with everything in the, uh, in the application layer. And it's just a question of, of when is appropriate to kind of port those things out to some kind of edge. And I look to more of like uh, CDNs and stuff, uh, ADN kind of stuff like Cloudflare, things like that are, are pretty handy for that sort of stuff. Um, but you mentioned earlier too that like you got to get the trust level right too. You can't trust that token coming in at the edge or you can't trust the contents of it unless you've done some kind of trust verification. Um, otherwise, someone can spoof that token and uh, and get through, right? Yep. And that, and that's actually worth, there's two things worth noting there. The first is, and again, I'm talking about a certain kind of token. Some tokens are opaque and they're just like strings. And then other tokens actually have embedded content in them. And, and JSON web tokens or dots are very common. It's a very common format for that. And most JSON web tokens, the content inside it, you can verify the integrity of it, but you can't verify the secret of it. Or you, it's not secret. So it's not encrypted. There are encrypted JSON web tokens. I'm not going to talk about those because I think I've seen one in my life and it was prominent enough that I wanted to tweet about it because it was <laughs> rare enough. Um, but you need to uh, make sure that whatever you're putting in there, as you kind of alluded to, isn't PII, isn't secret because you, know, you can protect it over the wire. You can protect it in a lot of different ways. But if anyone gets a hold of it, they're going to be able to see the inside of it because it's just base 64 URL encoded JSON. So there's that piece. And then there's the other piece of once you get that, how do you know you can trust it? And again, there's presented to the authorization server that actually generated it and that can do a check, right? But a lot of our clients want a more distributed approach. And that's a big reason for a, uh, for a signed token. Yeah. And in that case, especially if you're using public private keys, there's a private key that lives on the authorization server that signed it. The authorization server then publishes the public key so that anyone can see it because it's public key, no one cares. And then you, you as an API developer or the edge can actually read that public key and you don't have to read it every time. You can cache it because it's slow moving. And because you have the public key, you can verify that it, that, that token was signed by the corresponding private key. Therefore, the only person or entity that's holding that private key is the authorization server. Therefore, it's a valid token. Yeah. So. Which, to reiterate to me, the reason to do all that stuff, which sounds like a lot uh, to someone who hasn't looked at it, is uh, 
like there's a huge scale advantage to decentralizing those access control checks because if on every request you have to call some kind of author user store to go grab data from a database that is your bottleneck guaranteed on a long enough timeline um but you you touched on another thing in here which um i feel like is another one of these like folks get confused about it is you know, a few years back, it was like JSON Web Token became a thing. And I think a lot of us rejoiced that like internally we would see these these external API tokens turn into an object that's somehow attached to the, the chain of requests. Typically some kind of header with structured data, which is great, but like there was no standard way to do it. So everybody made up their own junk. Um, so JSON Web Tokens provided this nice envelope for it. But I feel like there's a lot of confusion and maybe a lot of mistakes in my eyes, but let's see what you think on where is an appropriate layer of your application, you know, from a network perspective and otherwise where you should be using JSON Web Token. Um, and perhaps what I feel like is a general misunderstanding that, oh, it's a signed JSON Web Token. I can put all the application information that I need in there and put it out over the wire to external API users without risk. Uh, anyways, there's a lot to unpack here. And I guess just, you know, what, what's your general thoughts on when, where, how to use JSON Web Token? Yeah, I mean, I think that you have the main reason why you would be interested in doing that, right? Which is you can have a client who owns it or who gets it from a, an authorization server. And then your API never has to talk to that authorization server. So then the question becomes, what does your API actually need? Um, and obviously the answer is it depends. It could need just a user identifier, right? Where all it's doing is saying, oh, I'm going to look at this token. I'm going to extract the user identifier after I've done all the security checks, right? I'm kind of alighting over that. But after I've done all the security checks, I'm going to pull out the, the sub claim. It's a technical uh, um, term for it. And then I'm going to look in my data store for all the things that belong to that user, because that's what I'm doing. I'm sh I'm just yeah, I'm a read operation. Um, obviously, if you need more things, then you can pull more things out of there. Uh, but you don't want to put a lot of things into the JSON Web Token, and you want to kind of get from the JSON Web Token to the business logic, the data that you need to perform the operation as soon as you possibly can. Um, people often ask me, like, you would talk about Jots, and say they say, how big can it be? Which is an ominous question, and there's actually no limit on JSON Web Tokens. The limit is on the transport mechanism. Uh, but you know, obviously, you need to think about when you're sending something con conceivably on every request, right? Because the APIs are stateless because you are presenting the user information or the requester information to them every time. You want to think about what the performance implications of a eight kilobyte or or bigger jot on every request is. I did want to make one short side uh, note was that we've actually found and what our recommendation is, if you can get by in the browser world, mobile world is a little bit different, but if you can get by in the browser world with putting your access token in a HTTP only cookie, that has just a ton of benefits. Now that only works, that doesn't work if you're if you're a, an analytics application that lives at foo.com and you're talking to Zendesk at Zendesk.com, but it's great if you're first party, right? So if you're a spa 
that is talking to an enterprise API that another team built, but it's still living at .example.com, then with HTTP only SS secure cookies, you get um, automatic kind of transmission of it. As long as you're using with credentials true on, on the fetch call, it rides along and it's very easy for the um, API uh, developer to extract and it is not amenable to XSS, right? It's not, and you're not going to be able to exfiltrate that token the same way that you would a token that's in local storage or session storage, which is a big worry because these tokens, we mentioned before that they are time bound, but they still are useful for that period of time. And because there are some standards out there to fix this problem, but right now a token is very similar to a car key, right? Like, Anyone who finds your car key, if they're next, if the key is next to the car, they can turn it on. And so you want to be, make sure that you're storing that car key in a, in a pocket that's buttoned up as opposed to a pocket that anybody can kind of get into to mix my metaphors. <laughs> Pockets and cars. And yeah, hopefully we're keeping up. <laughs> so we kind of said like the, the JSON web tokens could contain a lot of other context about the API call. I like that you called out the size factor too. One thing I always worry about with that is like quite often, once you kind of cross over the edge into the network, there may be a chain of calls where that, that jot gets passed along. And so there's a combinatorial effect of kind of the, the bandwidth that thing can eat. If there's, you know, 10, 20 calls in a chain, once it comes in that 8k just became 80, you know, or uh, if it's a meg or something crazy, then, you know, it could get out of control. Right. So right. it is something to, to be mindful of, but I guess, uh, my other thought on that is like, if you've got all this information in there, you should only be putting things that you don't mind external user seeing if you're passing the jot externally. And my personal take on this has always been, uh, do an exchange to an opaque token externally. And when that request comes in, swap out that opaque token and rehydrate it as a jot at the edge. Uh, if you want to be super safe and not accidentally overexpose something in the contents of that jot. But I also feel like there's never any good like can solutions for doing that. So that's, that's an interesting perspective. So the jot gets issued to the, to the, um, well, I mean, I guess at that point, you're storing the JOT server-side, essentially, right? And so that's kind of the BFF pattern where you never actually send tokens down to a native client or a spa because you don't trust them. Keep it all server-side, and then it's sessions all over again with their pluses and minuses. Um, you know, in that case, I might actually, if if I was... That, that'd be one approach to do the opaque token. Another approach would be you actually could encrypt the payload of the JOT using that, or you could encrypt a specific claim inside there. Um, yeah. You know, I think it all gets back to how much do you want decentralization and how much do you want to like make calls back to certain, you know, authoritative servers. And there are trade-offs in each, in each case. And um, it's hard because I don't, I, I agree with you. There's no, great can solutions and there's really no great rule of thumb as far as I can tell because it is also context dependent. I did want to say one pattern we have seen is people um, getting a passing a jot, the, the client holds the jot and then you kind of mentioned a chain 
of, of calls inside a system. In that chain, you should actually, if you're re- being really serious about integrity of the job, you should actually re-validate um, each time, right? Check the claims, check the signature, all those things. And public-private key cryptography is slower than symmetric cryptography. So sometimes what people will do if they want to kind of maintain that zero trust uh, perspective is at the they'll get that first jot and then they'll kind of peel off pieces that are important for this call and they'll re-sign it into a jot with a symmetric signing key because symmetric signing keys are great they're fast they're just you really have a distribution problem with them especially if you're talking about external systems but internally you know it's a shared secret and so everybody down the chain can verify that jot and still get that um, safety blanket of of the signature verification but it's a quicker solution and conceivably the job could be smaller too or certainly more focused oh, that's that's clever i like that a lot so i don't know let's let's uh, maybe zoom out a little bit i feel like uh for folks that this is all a new subject we're pretty far down the rabbit hole uh, it's like, all right, we got to figure out which of the uh, 10 modes of OAuth that we need to pick. Uh, and then we have to like go through a whole design exercise to come up with our scopes and figure out which of those metadata bits are going to end up in the jot and whether or not we're going to sign it. And right. Like, uh, so I guess, you know, for someone that's listening, that's like researching, uh, you know, the boss said, I got to build an API and I don't want it to get hacked. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, uh, we could chill here and say, go to fusion off and buy a thing and do it. But like, uh, what's a practical starting point to you for API developers and kind of doing the right thing to your point, that's the least complicated solution. Yeah. I mean, so the first thing I'd say is, and again, this comes from my background is, you know, use API keys if they, if they work for you, right? Cause that, that is kind of an easy solution. It has its downsides because they're static. They're harder to rotate, yada, yada. Um, but if you need that delegated access pattern, if you want to leverage the 10 or 11 years of OAuth expertise, um, if you want that distributed system, um, feel that we talked about, right, where you can verify the validity of an API key, sorry, of a token without talking to a central server, um, if you have an API that's where the clients are going to be something that you can't really trust, like a browser or a mobile device, then I think OAuth starts to make more sense. And then I, I think the next thing to do is, um, you know, frankly, there are Fusion Auth is an option. There's other options out there. I'm, you know, I can name names like uh, Key Cloak is one, Auth Zero is another uh, that can take some of it off your plate. There's also, frankly, a lot of open source libraries out there. So if I was actually, you know, my boss just said, hey, do this, and I was a Python shop, I'd probably Google Python OAuth OSS library because identity servers, which is kind of the class of things that Auth0 and KeyCloak and FusionAuth fall into, have a ton of benefits, but it's also kind of another layer of complexity. It's another architectural component. So, um, you know, I think it's worth evaluating them, but it's also worth looking at what an open source library will get you, especially, again, it depends on where you are. If you are starting off with kind of a greenfield API and um, you only have kind of one API, then maybe the overhead of an identity server is too much. And you know, an open source library that can issue the tokens um, 
will will serve your purposes because again you kind of laid out very nicely all of the require i, I want to say what kind of requirements work right they need to go in the design work needs to go in and then there's kind of the nuts and bolts of it and there's a lot of solutions to nuts and bolts um one thing i would say is please don't write your own oauth server right like that that is that is a poor choice because there are so many options out there free and commercial um but uh yeah that, that's kind of where i would start is is do all the design work, do the upfront work, do because that's the that's the hard stuff and that's the secret sauce and that's where the value is. And then the actual mechanics of it, there's a lot of solutions out there, open source and commercial that can solve the problem. Yeah, I was definitely going to say it. If you didn't, uh, don't build your own. Uh, that's that's pretty well established. Uh, there's a long, long list of companies who've had very public, embarrassing, reputation damaging breaches because they tried to roll their own. Um, and I think especially for OAuth, I mean, come on, like there's so many freaking options. Uh, but my general take is usually like every time I've seen folks try to go build their own, even if they're using some of the open source stuff, it's just a matter of time before like a year or two down the road, you look and it's, it's an awful solution compared to the commercial options out there. And it's like, you just spent two years of development. Did you really save anything by not buying something? So I'm usually a big advocate of like, go buy a product that does this stuff. Uh, and I would certainly encourage listeners, take a look at Fusion Auth, take a look at their competitors. Uh, if you can, even if you think you can't afford it, do the build versus buy, because what you're going to spend in having a dedicated team build a solution for this, for what will be two years plus, I promise, it's going to be garbage compared to the commercial options. And you'll probably have spent a lot less money than you would on engineers. Uh, so I don't usually like push for, uh, you know, vendors as guests here to like people to go look at it. But this is one that I have strong opinions on because I've seen it done so bad so many times. So anyways, um, well, Dan, thanks so much for uh, sharing all this kind of insight with us and, uh, you know, being so open about it. I really appreciate it. Jason, it was, it was a pleasure and it was fun to kind of dive deep and um, thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. Uh, for anyone that wants to go kind of learn more from you after this and kind of get follow-ups, where should they go look? Sure. So FusionAuth.io is our website, and we actually have an article section that is probably 20 or 30 different vendor-neutral articles about authentication. We just published one about why you should track login failures. So this is the kind of thing we like to nerd, up, nerd, about, nerd out about. Excuse me. Um, and then uh, you can follow me on Twitter at moreds. Uh, and I don't know whether I'm supposed to announce, like, do the Mastodon, the Blue Sky, all those other things, but um, I'm on LinkedIn and my username's Mordias there too. So, right on. Go take advantage, you. folks. Go learn. Uh, it's an important subject and you can't escape it whether you like it or not. <laughs> Thanks again, Dan. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you have a question you want to ask, Look in the description of whichever platform you're viewing or listening on, and there should be a link there so you can go submit a question, and we'll do our best to find out the right answer for you.